Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Ketchup Town, South Carolina. What do you think, Bear? I think that's a great uh, condiment. A great condiment. I I think when you've got a town like Ketchup, you're going to have good barbecue and you're going to have good grilling. There you go. And I suspect in South Carolina, they use a lot of ketchup. (laughs) You would think so. They may put ketchup on everything, particularly in Ketchup Town. Why the name otherwise? That's right. We have, we'll have to check that out. Anyway, one of the things we want to do this podcast was to reclaim a bit of the last podcast. In fact, we were going to move on and we will move on to mindful practices. But in our conversation prior to the podcast, both Ray and I were thinking, you know, this concept of mindset is not easy, an easy one to grab a hold of. And I think, in- I, think it's, I think it's very difficult, Bob. I, I, well, I think it's very difficult because people don't consider it, mm-hmm. that they have probably two or more mindsets they naturally default to and move into and just assume that's who they are. Mm-hmm. And in large part, it's become who they are. But the concept of a mindset to me is very critical to the topic we're discussing and in general to the way people operate in their lives. And early on, I remember when we were thinking about setting up this particular series, we thought the concept of mindset was going to be one that we were not going to spend a lot of time on. And yet the more we talked about it, the more we realized how important it is that people who think they can just walk in and decide, well, today I'm going to facilitate the conversation are at a disadvantage if they don't understand that they're bringing multiple mindsets to any encounter. We talked about the authoritative mindset, the data mindset, but there could be any number of them. As you commented, the listening mindset, the therapeutic mindset, one could have a spiritual mindset. There are just so many people access multiple mindsets all the time, but some of them are not near as accessible as others. They're not the kind that they've employed sufficiently often enough to have had that mindset begin to direct behaviors in a more habitual way. Comments on that? Yeah, I I want to comment on that. One of the things people need to consider in relationship to mindset is that there are mindsets you can eventually develop and use successfully. But many of those require training. Mm -hmm. They're not as casual as thinking you can read something and I've got it. For example, I think there's such a thing as a diagnostic mindset in medicine. Mm -hmm. And you cannot get that except through training. There's not a natural way to view the world diagnostically. I think there can be a data mindset, which is how you use information and how you call that data in order to get facts that are usable and applicable to situations. But that's training. That is not natural. And I think we're being a little bit precise in saying that in the facilitated mindset, that quite frankly is not natural. Mm -hmm. That's not something you're born with. It's not something most families would train you to do. It requires some training, but it is doable and you can learn it and you can use it, you know, if you're willing to understand the principles we're talking about. As I think about what you're saying, and I certainly agree with you completely, you know, there's been a lot written on the concept of deliberate practice and 10,000 hours of doing something. Yeah, there you go. So I think people's life experiences in some regard is their training. And if you've not had a life experience where you've devoted a lot of time to listening 
devote a lot of time to the things we've been talking about in the field of communication, then you're not going to be oriented. You're not going to be inclined towards this particular mindset. You're going to be inclined towards the mindsets that you've developed over a lifetime of doing certain things. And so that's why we think it's so important to realize on the front end that as we talk about facilitation as a communication practice, that mindset becomes important. Because I think we both agree that if you don't have the right mindset going in, it is not going to come off. It's going to be a disaster in some cases because you think you're doing right. And I can remember so many executives I've worked with, they will say, I got this. I got it. Don't worry, Bob. I can do this. And then we go into the meeting and it is. It's a disaster because their mindset is not there to cause them to do the things they ought to be doing, even though they think they're trained to do it. So I'm right. with you on that. And so all we're doing with this particular conversation is emphasizing the idea of mindset and saying, hey, right. even we passed on it early on thinking, well, this is a, a minor issue. When after a while talking about it, we said, no, this is a major issue. Your mindset and being able to adopt and adapt to a facilitative mindset is critical to your ability to employ skills and the process that we call facilitation. Like you said in a previous episode, that very often when we share these ideas, they, they quite frankly sound easy. Sounds because like they're easy for us, Ray. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I was going to say that the easy sounding part is natural because it's conceptually easy to grasp. Mm-hmm. Like you said in a previous comment, any five-year-old could do this with 30 years of experience. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the idea that it, it would be easy even to someone younger. But the fact is you you have to do it and you have to repeat it and you have to be trained on it and get some experience with it if it's going to be effective. So, I think where we want to go next is a facilitative mindset leads us towards certain what we call mindful practices. I think it makes sense. Right. It's the idea that these are practices that evolve out of a mindset that says, I want to facilitate, and they become mindful. And again, mindfulness also speaks to the idea of being attentive. Mindfulness is about being alert, being present. You sound like an old safety patrol boy. (laughs) I've still got my belt. Still got your belt. You were captain, weren't you? At one time. You were captain too, weren't you, until you got suspended? Until I got thrown off the safety patrol. You're right. For what, by the way? We won't go there. That's an old story. Was Uh, it for too much candy? You were (laughs) taking bribes? Too much candy? No, I grabbed a kid at an intersection. (laughs) (laughs) Threw him in front of the car? That's right. No, I grabbed him because he didn't do what I told him to do. Being captain of safety patrol was all a control issue for me. It was all about power. All about power. Well, hey, mindful practices. I'm going to throw it out as a statement, and I'd like you to respond to it. The first one that I would like to comment on is the idea of asking hard questions well. How does that one grab you? What, what's your thoughts when you hear that? Well, I, I think that's one that you really do need some practice on because for a lot of us, the hard questions, what makes hard questions hard is uh, what your concern will be the response. Ah. Very often, some of the hard questions you ask are going to be sensitive. They're going to cause some people to flinch. They're going to cause others to react in a defensive manner. They're going to cause others to want to come out evangelistically and support your position. So you've got to ask these questions in a manner and with an intent that causes people to take them seriously, but not react to them in a way that begins to make things more difficult. That's one thing I was going to push you on. I think anybody can ask hard questions. So how about that concept of asking them well? Any thoughts on how you do that? Well, for me, someone who's asked a hard question well is someone who asks the question and no one can perceive that there's a judgment involved Mm. or that there's a criticism involved. For example, if I would say, how in the world could you do that? Mm -hmm. That's not really a question. That's a statement with a question mark at the end of it. Mm -hmm. 
That's too obvious. I think there are times that people are apologetic. They preface the question with a lot of apology or a lot of explanation to try and ward off any reaction. And that is not necessarily effective. That causes people to get prepared for what they don't want to hear. You know, and I think that's a great observation because sometimes doing that with a bunch of setup, a lot of preamble to a question, as you said, causes people to get prepared, causes them to be on guard. It also blurs the question. It doesn't make the question as clear and precise as we need it to be. Exactly. So I do like that idea of not only do you not disguise the question or wrap it in some kind of special clothing. I guess where I want to go with that, when I think of you as a therapist, you have to ask lots of hard questions. Questions you ask people are penetrating questions or questions that really get them to think about things they don't want to think about. Any thoughts there about how you think about it in terms of therapy? Well, I think in therapy, it's a, it's a bit different in that In therapy, you're trying to probe and touch on something that's intentionally hidden, Mm. either consciously or unconsciously, intentionally hidden because it's difficult to touch. It's painful to touch. It's Mm -hmm. scary to touch. So I I wouldn't expect that quite so much in a group setting or facilitating in a professional setting that it's going to be one of those deep, dark secrets, as much as I think people's agendas could be offended or uprooted with your hard questions. What you said earlier to me, Bob, is really a key factor. And that is you make questions precise, brief, to the point, and with no apologies and no judgment. Mm -hmm. Those are characteristics, I think, of a well-asked hard question. And I agree with all of that, all of that. But I'm going to say that I think in groups, although it's not therapeutic and it's not as deeply rooted as it is with individuals when they're in therapy, I think in groups, there are a lot of things that are hidden. There are a lot of things that people do not want to come to the surface. In fact, we used to, in a training session, refer to those as the hairy mooses in the room because those are the things people don't want to talk about. And yet those are the very things that they have to talk about. So I think to some degree, the asking the hard questions well is to drive towards those things that people are reluctant to discuss, but are central to what's going on in the group. And oftentimes, people can work together for years and never address fundamental conflict that are developing over the course of time. So I believe there is some similarity to that in terms of facilitating a group by asking hard questions well. When you can get through them, people will often say, wow, we've never talked about that. Right. And I think, unfortunately, you're describing your level of skill And a lot of people won't have that. And so to me, it is far riskier for someone (laughs) who isn't as well-versed as you are to feel like they can tread into that area and come out unscathed. And I don't disagree with you at all that those are the exact kind of questions that need to be asked and answered and used to move the group. I would at least encourage people to try to go there, but can't go there with other than a facilitative mind. Right. Maybe we ought to move on to another mindful practice. One that I've uh, commented on is about attending to context. Any thoughts on that? Well, as I understand it, what you're saying there is I have to be alert to the context we're in and use it to focus my attention on how this group is going to move, how I make things easier for this group given the context. Yeah, I would even say if you're going to be a good facilitator, you really don't walk into the room without some understanding of the background. For example, you really don't walk into the room without some understanding of the political landmines 
or the fault lines in an organization. And even if you can, to see who's aligned with who in a given group, just as a background, because that's context. And so all that, as a facilitator, you're armed with information that you don't come across as naive or you've misread it. You know, I've heard frequently by organizations, that person had no clue as to who we are. They don't understand us at all. And my reaction to that is it's a failure on that person's part to not have attended or really looked at context, both in the immediate group, but also in the organization as a whole. So I think that is an aspect of being a good facilitator. Although I've often said it helps me not to know the content of what's being done. I often say that helps me stay focused on the process, but not knowing the organization could be a real problem. Yeah, you're actually, yeah, that couldn't be uh, truer. Uh, in my experience during facilitation, I often say the same thing that I don't want to know the content. I don't want to know the ideas and the concepts you bring here because, quite frankly, naivete allows me to be harder on you. Mm-hmm. I have no sympathy for anyone's position because I don't know what they are. And when I don't know what is causing you greatest concern and that you have as a burden, then I don't have to carry that weight. It allows me to operate a little bit more fluidly and a little bit less in a bias. And so I think you're absolutely right. Knowing the context, what we'll walk into is one thing. Knowing the content and potentially being sided with that is to your disadvantage. Here's one, Bob, that I think you do incredibly well. Does this mean I'm going to have to find one that you do incredibly well? One or more. So I can pick anyone. Anyone. This is one I think you've always gotten credit for in all the groups I've ever been with you in. And that is uh, checking in. Hmm. That you check in with the group regularly, and that makes a huge difference. Why don't you speak to that as a part of the mindset? It goes back to that one concept we introduced with listening, and then we talked about with dialogue. And I think it's the notion of summarizing, and we'll be speaking to that as a skill set. But when I think about checking in, it's become almost automatic that every three to five minutes, I'm trying to get a gauge of where are we? Do we know what we're talking about? Is this what I'm hearing? Is this what you're hearing? And so I think the check-in process is a real quick, short request that says, here's what I'm hearing. Is that right? What are you hearing? And so I'm checking in with the individual, or I'll make a comment, make an observation if I'm doing a teaching session, and I'll stop and I'll say, does that make sense? What are people's reactions? What's some pushback that you might give on that idea? So I think the check-in is not a major deal, but most people don't do it. They will let a a conversation go on a long time. Even facilitators that are trained will not decide periodically we need to just stop and do a quick check-in. Do you have any formula for that periodic nature of the check-in? How often, how frequently, or what would trigger it for you? I think if I'm beginning to get lost in the conversation, if I'm beginning to feel like, where are we right now? That's where I might stop and say, here's what I'm hearing. So that would be an example of a check-in. But the simple question you asked me is, what would trigger that? What would cause me to think now's a good time to check in? I think it is a case that I've opted for quicker check-in than a prolonged check-in. But most of the time, it's after three or four comments versus one comment. I don't see checking in every time someone says something, I'm going to check in. But I think as it unfolds and we get three or four ideas out there, that's a good time to check in. Buy it. Yeah, I do. And I would probably add for myself, just because it's important to me for clarity, that if someone says something that's particularly confusing or isn't mm. doesn't have the clarity of definition or direction that will be needed to make it useful, then I might also check in there and say, well, you know, I'm hearing you say this, but I'm wondering what that really means to you. Can you explain that a little bit more from your vantage point? What would you like us to hear there? So in a sense, confusion, either by one individual, by what they've said, does not seem to make sense, or 
the group begins to unfold something and we've got a lot of ideas out there and there's a confusion related to that because they don't seem to be connected or things like that. So I, I think what I'm hearing you say, and I agree with it, is there is this underlying we've lost track or this underlying sense of confusion that now we need to clarify by checking in. I guess I want to go on because we're, again, getting close to time. A couple more I would like to address. I'll grab one, and then I'd love to hear you speak to one, actually speak to both. One I like is the concept in mindful practice is modulation, pace, and humor. I think a facilitator needs to realize that in the course of a conversation, we need to modulate that. It's not all at the same level. It's up and down. There's a kind of rhythm to it, and we need to sense that rhythm and try to deal with it and pace. My own reaction is I think oftentimes people think of facilitation as very passive. I'm just going to sit here and let this unfold, and I'm not going to say much unless, you know, there's a place to say something. And my view is no, pace is very important in facilitating. You have to maintain, as we said the last episode, a certain level of energy. You have to create a sense that that this is movement, that we are moving. And then lastly, I just like the notion of humor. I think facilitators that have some sense of humor, that can find the place and time when they can drop something humorous, creates a much better environment. It doesn't take the focus off of an issue that might be very important and very difficult, but it takes the pressure off. It's almost like a pressure valve. A good use of humor is like letting off a little bit of the pressure that might be being built by talking about a particular topic. Any thoughts on that one? Well, I was going to ask you about the word modulation. I haven't often used that in my description of facilitation as a mindset. But if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is you try to keep not everything at a flatline level, but you try to keep it from becoming too extreme. If people are getting too mm. loud, getting too aggressive, getting too pointed, I want to modulate that. I want to bring that under some degree of control so it doesn't become distracting. It doesn't become an obstacle to the remainder of the conversation. Is that what you meant by modulation? In part, yeah. I think that's a great observation. I love the idea of modulation by volume. I also think modulation as it relates to pace. We've been in conversations that if we were to describe it in a communication sense, it's almost like flatline. Everything seems dull, boring. Nothing seems to be being said here that's worth anything. So a part of modulation is also trying to identify any sense of meaning that's going on and then capture those moments and amplify them. And so my reaction would be there will be a lot of people that can't separate the sense of what's meaningful and what's not meaningful in this conversation. They treat everything as if it's all equal. And I think a good facilitator says, no, there are some parts of this conversation that are clearly more meaningful clearly more difficult for us to talk about. Those are things that I need to make sure we keep emphasizing, get focused on, and then move past those things fairly quickly that are not very relevant, not very meaningful. So that's another part of modulation. Well, in your description of that particular element of uh, mindful practice, including humor, I think humor is a game changer. I think anyone who cannot engage with a sense of humor, now not making things humorous and reducing their seriousness or reducing their value, but just saying in the midst of this, let's also be a little bit light on occasion. Let's also take this in stride. And I think anyone who is an effective facilitator does have a personal sense of humor can find a way to make application of that in the process. Yeah, that's my view. Humor is invaluable. It needs to be well-timed and it needs to be on point. I mean, the idea of saying, I'm just going to drop in jokes or I'm going to make light of things, that won't cut it. But a good facilitator does have a sense of how humor can play out in this space. Now, I would love to go on, but we are out of time. So I think we need to let maybe one or two more mindful practices go and we can let those seep into our next episode on facilitation skills. 
Okay, bye. Fine with me. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is, almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast. 